0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Hope you're doing well. Um, one of the members of our congregation asked me to summarize uh, in an applicable way um, the doctrines of Reformed theology. And although that would be pretty difficult because there's a lot of them, I'm going to hit the highlights Based on an acrostic that is used, the acrostic of tulip, T U L I P. I'm glad it wasn't chrysanthemum because I can't spell that. (laughs) Anyway, well, a few years before the pilgrims landed um, on the shores of New England in the Mayflower, there was a controversy in the Netherlands that spread throughout Europe and then around the world. It began um, in, 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 in amongst like a faculty. Of uh, the Dutch institution, where there was, you know, they were they were Calvinists basically. Some of the professors um, they begin to have some second thoughts, and they wanted these doctrines to be clarified. They were trying to uh, combat the beliefs of a guy named Jacob Arminius, and it kind of led actually to a movement of Orthodox. Reform theology, and um, so out of this came uh, the acrostic tulip, and you know we might call it an acronym um, if you wanted to, but more specifically, it's an acrostic. And so these five points are not all of what reform theology consists of, but. They do a pretty good job. And one of the things that I've noticed about them is, you know, some people will say, I'm a three-point Calvinist or, you know, I'm a two-point Calvinist. I, honestly, if you read and think about each one of them, I don't know how you can be even a one-point Calvinist and not be a five-point. So anyway, you can judge for yourself. These, uh, these five tenets of Calvinism stand for these things the first the T stands for total depravity the second letter the U stands for unconditional election the L stands for limited atonement the I is irresistible grace and the P actually can be preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints depend on where you read but since they both start with P I'm sure it's okay um, so tulip, all right. So I'm glad it starts with total depravity because really that's where it all hinges on. Total depravity essentially uh, is the doctrine which Scripture is replete with that man is totally depraved. That he is there is. It's not that he is um, mostly depraved. It's not that he is very bad off. It's not as that he is somewhat corrupted is that he is totally and completely depraved there is nothing in him that would seek God there's nothing in him that would uh, want to find God he's never going to look for God he doesn't know God He's, he's dead as the scripture says you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and so total depravity is summed up very easily in that man has no, nothing redeemable in him. I think I said recently in another one of these podcasts that it's not like there's a little spark uh, that, that if blown upon, uh, might ignite. Nothing there. Nothing there whatsoever. Now, the application of this, uh, Steve, in particular, Steve wanted to hear some application is that if men are totally depraved, you can't talk them into being undepraved. You can't convince them. You can't um, sell them. You can't uh, You can't teach them. You can't do anything. They're, they're, it's like literally talking to a piece of wood. So man without God's inner invention is going to be completely and totally unresponsive. We shouldn't be uh, frustrated uh, when we meet people, when we talk to people and they're not interested, or when we speak to them and they don't understand. Um, Paul likens it to a blindness. Jesus oftentimes um, likened it to a deafness. Uh, Deaf people can't hear blind people can't see dead people um, can't be convinced, can't be sold, can't be uh, you know brought back to life, of course without miraculous intervention. Uh, so anyway, that's what total depravity is all about. So it, it takes off of us the onus of trying to wake people up and convince people. and it also helps us to not necessarily feel bad. Uh, when we talk to people and they don't, they don't like what we have to say. They're not interested in what we have to say, and and, and so forth. Now, the U, in this is uh, unconditional election. So, all right. There's no condition that exists. There's no reason for. There's no nothing that God noticed or saw. There was no beauty in us, that God looked at us and saw us, and there was no redeeming quality about us that made God choose us. That God chose us knowing we were completely and totally depraved, that we were completely dead, that we were helpless, that we were blind, that we were deaf. We were so blind we couldn't see him, we were so deaf we couldn't hear him, we were so dead that, of course, there was no life in us. So the unconditional election Is saying that for by grace are we saved, and that is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Nothing that we did, nothing that we said, nothing that we understood. Um, So, what it does is it takes away from us, practically speaking, any credit for our own salvation. Now, one little thing to add on to this that I don't know especially is connected with this doctrine, but I like. I like this. The Bible says that who God elected those he foreknew. And so it's it's actually even better than unconditional election. It's that God already knew all the bad things we were going to do, all the times we were going to sin. And He still chose us. I mean, to me, that's pretty amazing. He foreknew us. Uh, Those who don't hold these doctrines believe that the way that we are elected is God foreknew in that He knew we would do good or He knew we would serve Him, and so He elected us for that reason. That's not, I believe, at all what the Scripture is teaching. He's teaching us that He knew all the things we would do, uh, good and bad, throughout the rest of our lives and what that does is when you're ministering to a person or even when you think of yourself and you think oh how could God ever choose me well God knew God knew exactly who you would be who knew what you would do when you're talking to someone who's in the midst of sin you can even explain to them do you know God knew you were going to come to this point and still he chose you I mean to me that's a beautiful 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 doctrine now The third one is what I would call a technical and theological doctrine that I don't know how practical it is to try to explain to most people, but the truth of it is very particular and that is limited atonement. Now, limited atonement is, you know, whenever you talk about God and you say anything about Him and you say the word limited, you almost feel like you're saying something wrong. Uh, There's actually a better word, I think, uh, is that it's particular atonement. But since that doesn't start with an L, we will obviously change it. Uh, But particular atonement. Limited atonement basically means this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he died and atoned for the sins of a particular people or for particular sins, but not for all of them. Now, even saying that, I know that some people would go, but, 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 now that can't be, that can't be, Jesus died for all the sins of all the world. Well, think about it. If Jesus atoned for all the sins of all the people and all the world on the cross, then why would anybody go to hell? And the answer is, they wouldn't then we would be what's called universalist. We would believe that all people everywhere are saved and are saved by the blood of Christ. The Bible does not teach this. The Bible teaches this that there are those who will spend eternity in hell. And so particular atonement is the doctrine that Jesus saved people in particular. Now, not only does it teach us this, um, but it counteracts something that when I heard explained for the first time it just kind of boggled my mind and so maybe I'll pass it on with you and maybe you know, when you're sharing this with some of your friends who are believers, who love God, who love God's word, who just may not understand this right, um, then maybe this will help them the doctrine of particular atonement also teaches that when Christ died he did not die for the potential that maybe somebody might one day come to God, but he died for his friends. He died for those people whom he had, for those people that he foreknew and the people that he had elected. And so the part that boggled my mind that kind of had me spinning when somebody said it to me for the first time was, if you don't believe in the doctrine of limited atonement or the doctrine of particular atonement, then what you're saying is that Jesus could have died on the cross risen from the dead and there could have been no church and there could have been no one who was ever redeemed nobody ever covered by his blood because Christ's atonement was potential it wasn't particular does that make any sense it was just in the doctrine of those who hold to um, the beliefs of Arminianism it was to them Christ died and because of that, anyone in the whole wide world could come to him. All of their sins have already been paid for, so there's no limit to it at all. Every if every person would have come to God, if everyone would have confessed him, then he had you know his blood had enough power. Now, of course, his blood has enough power to cleanse everybody from their sins, but his blood doesn't do that. And I mean, when we hear the story of the of You know, Lazarus and the rich man, and we hear uh, Christ talking about hell, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies. I mean, this is a real thing in a real place. I hope nobody I know or nobody I've ever met ever goes there. I can't imagine anybody would wish that on anybody. But that's a whole other discussion. So, the doctrine of uh, limited atonement. So let's kind of recap. TULIP stands for, T for total depravity. Man is totally 100% devoid of any life, of any capability, of any merit, of any good thing. Uh, Unconditional election in that God chose us before the foundation of the world, not because of anything that we did or would do or could do, but because of His own goodness and His mercy and L for limited atonement which we're also calling particular atonement just so we can understand it better that God offered uh, salvation to his elect people this salvation went forward in time but it also went back in time it was for his particular elect people his elect people throughout the time of the Old Testament and his elect people going forward even till now and into the future God has a particular people in mind that he's saving alright so now we're moving on to I which is irresistible grace and this is a pretty simple thing basically what it means is if God calls you if he elects you that his callings and his uh, his election is not something you have power over God could not call a man and elect a man uh, to salvation and somehow that man resist God um, the deal is is we all resist God and in fact even after he saves us we resist him we sin against him uh, we live according to our own will and not his over and over and over again thank goodness thank God that His blood avails for us not just what we did, uh, you know, before you know we were baptized and the blood washed us, or before we, can, you know, confessed and, and and repented and our the blood washed us, or, or you know, however people want to believe it. Whenever Christ applied His atoning blood for us, it not only covered the things that we did; it covered the things we will do. So this is an amazing thing. So this, the notion here, the doctrine of irresistible grace, is that God's will uh, cannot be effectively resisted. It doesn't mean that you can't do wrong after he calls you or saves you or when you become his elect. It means that you cannot ultimately resist it, that you will be saved. I mean, for me, that gives me a great deal of hope. Uh, I have had times in my life when I've done sinful things and wondered if God could forgive me and love me. And, you know, to to know that He can. Now, there are people who would, you know, try to take advantage of the grace of God or, you know, Paul anticipated this problem. He said, and where, you know, sin abounded, grace abounded more. And then he asked the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he said, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin Uh, Live any longer therein. And so here we have irresistible grace is not an invitation for us to resist it or try to be God. It is a comfort and an understanding and a a beauty that God is more powerful uh, than us. And, you know, as John puts it, uh, God's greater than our heart. If our heart can't even conceive it or believe it or understand it, God's greater than our heart. And He loves us, and He calls us, and even though we may seem to resist Him, you may have a, a child in, uh, in your family, and you're worried about them. If God has called them, there may be times that they go through difficulties, but pray that they're God's elect, and if they are they will not be able to resist God. We can rest in this. And, well, really, the whole doctrine of TULIP is a doctrine that should give us a great deal of rest. Not a great deal of rest from doing anything, but a rest, rest from worry and a feeling like everything depends on us, of literally carrying the weight of the world. Christ carries the weight of the world. We don't. We can't save our relatives. We can't save our children. God does that, and he can save them. You know, when we say, you we can't save our children, that shouldn't be a desperate thing. It should be a beautiful thing. We can't save them, but God can. And he does. And he elects the, the, our, our our children and the normative way that God's word shows that he does it. That he makes promises to his people and to their children and their children's children. We should come to believe and expect to see God's grace and mercy uh, abounding toward our children and, uh, and we should be thankful for it. Even when we see them defying us and defying God, pray that The all-powerful God is more powerful than their stubborn will. And uh, watch what God will do in their lives. Now, the last of the doctrines um, is known as the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. And that really dovetails right into irresistible grace. In fact, they all go right into each other. They're very hard to separate in my mind. So, what that means as I was really describing irresistible grace, I was describing uh, in turn the perseverance of the saints is that God will keep us. You know, um, when I was an Arminian, I didn't, well, I didn't know I was Armenian. Arminian. When I believed the doctrines that are, that I now understand are Arminianism, uh, I called what those doctrines did to me, I called it the dark magic of Arminianism when I figured out what they were called. You know, because what they did is they played on me day and night mentally and they they made me believe that the everyone that was out there that was lost, that was anywhere near I, where I was, that I was responsible to go to them, to talk to them, to convince them, to sell them, to save them, and to keep them saved. And I, you know, of course I didn't mean that I had the ability to, but I meant, you know, that I could keep them in right standing with God by, I don't know, convincing them or putting them under guilt or, or uh, provoking them to good works or whatever it was. But on top of all of that, you know, there was my family, and then on top of all that, there was me. And and so, the way that I described it then, as I began to, God took these these scales off of my eyes and really gave me rest. I mean, I remember crying for days over this. I remember that I felt like a man in the circus or a man in one of these shows that has these long poles, these long skinny poles and he has all these poles and they're like tall and they're way up above his head and he gets plates going on these poles. He spins the plates, spins the plates, spins the plates and as long as the plates are spinning, they stay on the poles. But if they stop, they fall off and if he doesn't catch them, they break. And he was getting more and more poles going and more and more plates spinning. And and I kind of felt like that was me. And I was trying and trying and trying to keep them spinning. And especially when I was working downtown in downtown Columbus, we had all these people that had come out of drug addiction. Some of them were still in it. And they were dealing with so many horrible things. And I was going... To their houses, and I was going to church hours before, and I was, you know, offering to get them clothes and give them rides and bring them to church, and I was begging and pleading. And honestly, I got so stressed out and so overburdened, um, trying to, um, you know, imagine at least imagine that I was saving them, so to speak, that I was keep and having to keep them saved. And what happened is, is the more I did this, the less. I had time for doing the things that I should be doing in my home and in my personal life. And I kind of saw it being a desperate uh, rat race, a desperate um, thing that eventually all the plates were going to come crashing down and I started even to identify mentally with basically losing my own soul trying to save all these people. And I thought there was something noble about it. And I was like, well, at least if I'm lost, uh, you know, a lot of people will be saved. And and so I felt a little bit noble about it, but I got the understanding and I that the Scripture teaches nothing of the kind. And if it did teach any of the kind, that, you know, we, we would be hoping monuments would be erected to our greatness. I mean, look at all the people we saved, all the people we brought in. Now, I do believe that God will reward us and bless us the bible says that he will that we will share in his glory that we will have crowns and 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 all these things i i don't understand them all but you know c.s lewis when when he told me he said you know we all say well we don't really care about these crowns and we don't want them and we don't want rewards well i can tell you anything that comes from the hand of god i want it uh and i don't want it because i care about the value of any any you know like i'll care about any value of money or some beautiful thing in heaven that is here on earth. But there must be something beautiful to what God's rewards are. But those rewards will come really for the work that he does in us and through us and so ultimately the glory will be to him. But I remember the day when I had all the plates spinning the best I could and they were falling and I was catching them and spinning them and and I just got to thinking, I mean, I've got nothing more I can give. I have no more strength. I'm just completely spent. I'm done. I'm at the point where I can go on no more. And I remember being at that place, and I remember God gave me the Scripture. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit, and that which is born of flesh is flesh. And for me, it made all the sense in the world. It was like an answer to a problem I couldn't solve. And I begin to realize that if people are born of my flesh of my effort of my work i begin to wonder when the bible says those corruptible things wood hay and stubble will burn but those precious things won't i begin to understand that the precious things were the things that god was building and the people that god was saving and i begin to understand that it's not about me at all and when i did i just let all the plates go and all the poles stand and i just i just quit And I don't mean I quit trying to love and help and teach people and and all that. What I meant was, is I realized that he had all of these things in his hands. And I was worried what would happen, and I was right. Many of the plates fell. They were never people that were saved. They were, you know, never people that God was calling. They just liked me. And they appreciated how kind I had been to them, or they appreciated the nice things I had done and they were just friends but they really weren't the right kind of friends and so understanding the doctrines of grace really set me free and I just got to thinking to myself you know and I began laughing and crying and and I began spending time uh, just in wonderment about the whole thing and someone asked me what are you crying about and I'm like well I'm going to heaven that's what I'm crying about Because for the first time in my life, I had had the assurance of my salvation, and the assurance of my salvation wasn't in that I was going to persevere, that I had the strength, that I could make it. My assurance that I would persevere, that my children would, that many of the people that were in our church would, did not come because of me, but I finally had come to understand that it was all about him. And really that's why to me the doctrines of grace are so beautiful, because they point away from man, they point away from his strength and his work, because it is not by might, and it is not by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. And what God does, He's the man, He's the He's the One. Christ the man. He is the one that opens the doors that no man can shut. And for me, I'm so thankful the doors of salvation have been open to me, have been open to my family, have been open to the people of our church. And uh, I would encourage you to be free today. If you're not, be free from the burden and the worry. Take Christ's yoke upon you and learn of Him. For He, you know, if you do, the Scripture teaches us, you'll understand that His yoke is easy and His burden is light and you shall find rest in your soul. Thank you. And I hope that's been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me just sharing a little bit of my story and a little bit of the beauty of these wonderful doctrines.